Well, amen. Thank you, worship team. And it's great to see you all today. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 109. Psalm 109. We're nearing the end of our summer psalm series. We've got this week and next, and then we'll be jumping back into Acts. Uh, And just a disclaimer, our summer psalm this morning doesn't feel particularly summery. This um, This is a difficult passage. I remember in high school, for whatever reason it was art class, I remember these students that would uh, if they'd, they'd find something in their Bible or they'd look something up on the internet and then they would really grill me, give me the gears in art class. Maybe, I don't know if some of our students have ever lived through this, but, you know, they just find those parts in the Bible and they would, you know, they'd scoff and say, did you know that this was in your Bible? And of course they'd read it aloud in art class and then I would have to try and explain why this is in the Bible. Psalm 109 is one of those passages that you're just praying, please don't find Psalm 109 and then read it aloud in art class because this is, this is a difficult text. Your unbelieving neighbor can't believe this is in your Bible. And as I read it aloud, it could be that some of you actually will sit there and think, I cannot believe this is in our Bible. Charles Spurgeon said, truly, this is one of the hard places of Scripture, a passage which the soul trembles to read. Yet as it is a song unto God and given by inspiration, it's not ours to sit in judgment upon it, but to bow our ear to what God the Lord would speak. And so as we find ourselves perhaps shocked by the text today and challenged by the text, it's not ours to sit in judgment over it. It is ours to bow our ear to what the Lord would speak to us. And he speaks to us through Psalm 109. So look with me now. Hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good, hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sins of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. 
for I'm poor and needy. My heart is stricken within me. I'm gone like a shadow at evening, shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. And with my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, what do we do with a text like this? You know, I, one of the tremendous privileges of, of being able to preach God's word is that I get to live in passages all week long. Uh, there's something about, if you've ever preached or if you've ever taught, there's something about the, the way that you dive into something in advance that, that is really transformative. And some texts I'm finding are easier to dive into than others. Living in Psalm 109 all week has been interesting for my heart and for my soul and perplexing. What do we do with a passage like this? We know that all scriptures breathed out by God. We know that the Holy Spirit gave us this psalm, but why? Again, I think Charles Spurgeon's helpful just in framing our time this morning. He notes, it, speaking of Psalm 109, it must be right or it would not be here. But how, we cannot see. Why should we expect to understand all things? Perhaps it's more for our benefit to exercise humility and reverently worship God over a hard text than it would be to comprehend all mysteries. So Spurgeon says, as we come to this text, he says, you know what, you need to adopt a a posture of humility today. You know, if you're expecting an aha, if you're expecting all the pieces to fit together so that you can stand up as, as judge over God's word and say, ah, it's good. He says, this, is, this isn't really the place for that. This is the place for us to say, this is from God, therefore we need it. I don't quite understand how all the pieces fit together, but in humility and reverence, I choose to worship the Lord through Psalm 109. So therefore, that's what we're going to do. We're going to worship the Lord through this difficult text. But because it's so challenging, I think we're going to need to spend some time thinking through application. You know, what do we do with this? Therefore, we're going to survey the psalm, but we're going to move maybe a little bit quicker than usual, and we're going to devote most of our time this morning to questions of application. Okay, so that's the approach. First of all, surveying the psalm. We're going to break it into three sections, and in the opening section, these first five verses, what we find is a cry for help. So let me just read this again quickly. David says, Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. And so here David is is bringing his cause, his concern to the Lord, and commentators agree that, that David here is referring to one of two historical events. We're not sure which. But as we look at his life, this flows out of one of two events. It could flow out of the time when his advisor, Ahithophel, betrayed him 
and was actually part, you've heard the story now two times over the last few months of Absalom's mutiny, David's son Absalom. Well, part of that story is that David's advisor, Ahithophel, joined Absalom in the, the mutiny. And actually, a lot of the heinous things that Absalom did were as a result of Ahithophel's counsel. So it's possible that this comes as a result of that betrayal, or it comes as a result of the betrayal of, of Doeg the Edomite. And if you are uh, an RMM reader, and I'm going to make a little plug again, you actually read this story this week. It's in 1 Samuel 22. And because it's such a charged psalm, and the language here is so heated, I think it actually would be helpful to do a very quick survey of the story itself. I'm going to pick one of those. We're not sure which. But I'm going to pick the story of Doeg the Edomite. And I just want to share this story with you so you can get some kind of idea of why David would pray a prayer like this. It's in 1 Samuel 22. And at the time of of Doeg the Edomite, David was not yet the king. Samuel had anointed David as the king. God had set him apart as the future king. But Saul was still on the throne. And David was an honorable man. He wouldn't even think to overthrow Saul. Right? That wasn't, it wasn't on his agenda. He would never do it. But of course, Saul, seeing his predecessor, seeing that God had rejected him as king and set up our David, Saul, in his insecurity, wanted to kill David. David, who had been a loyal and faithful servant to Saul. David, who had slain Goliath. Right? Saul saw him as a threat and sought to take his life. And so David had to flee from his home and his family and his king. And, his, and he was living on the run. And while he was living on the run, he came to a a city called Nob. Uh, And he'd been to this city many times before because he was a faithful soldier. He had done many errands for the king. And so he went into this familiar city and he ran into a priest named Ahimelech. And this was a familiar face. Ahimelech had seen David many times before. And David was hungry. He had some men who were with him. And so he asked Ahimelech if he could have some bread. And he said, and I left in such a rush, Ahimelech, that I didn't bring my weapon. Could I have Goliath's sword? By the way, David had every right to that. He killed Goliath. And so Ahimelech, suspecting nothing of this visit, gave David and his men bread to eat. And he gave David the sword. And he sent him on his way. Just as he would any other time when David visited the city. But something was different this time. Doeg, the Edomite, happened to be in the city. And he ran to King Saul. And he told him what had happened. And insecure Saul and the betrayer, uh, Doeg, they come back to the city of Nob. And Saul accuses Ahimelech, and he says, look at what you've done, you traitor. Why would you help David? It's because you hate me. And and he says, what are you talking about? David's your faithful servant. I've helped him a hundred times. I don't know what you're saying. And Saul turned to his soldiers, and he said, kill him and kill the priests who are with him. But the soldiers in Saul's army, they're wise enough to say, there's no way that I'm going to turn my sword against the priests. Are you kidding me? So then Saul turns to Doeg, and we see this in 1 Samuel 22 turns to Doeg and he says, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. So that's the context, we think, for this psalm. Because of Doeg's treachery, this entire city, the men, the women, the children, even the, even the babies, were murdered, put to death. That's what's ringing in David's mind, we think, as he's writing Psalm 109. You know, you can imagine, we, I took my kids to medieval times when we had our week of vacation, 
and uh, it was so cute. Noelle's just four years old, right? I was wondering, is she going to enjoy this? But then the blue knight rode by. And as the blue knight rode by on his horse, he, he looked up and he made eye contact with Noelle and he did one of these. And you'd think she'd saw an angel. She was, like, captivated. And, and, you know, and it just, as I was reading this, it made me think about, you know, as David and his soldiers are, are marching through Nob and all these, you know, these little ones, how many of them are kind of looking through the window and doing one of these at, at King David and King David does a little wave back and makes the eye contact. The whole city slaughtered the children, the babies, because of what? A few loaves of bread. And David is furious. And it leads us to the most challenging section of this psalm. With that in our mind, now we turn our attention to this plea for justice. So look at verses 6 to 8, for example, where David prays, against, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Let, when he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. Now, if you've been tracking with us for the last few months, then you probably recognize verse 8 from, from what we were studying previously. Does anybody remember hearing verse 8? May another take his office. Where did we hear that? It's Acts chapter 1. right? Peter picks up this prayer and he applies this to Judas. And so what we learn in Acts chapter 1 is that part of our understanding of Psalm 109 is that this is a prophetic psalm. It's a psalm that is looking forward to the judgment that will rain down on the one who betrays the innocent one. And Peter said, well, we've seen the perfectly innocent one, Jesus, and therefore this is applied to Judas. Therefore, we're going to replace him and all the curses are going to fall on Judas. So that is one of the ways that we should understand Psalm 109, prophetically looking forward. And yet, there's more to it. Because David really wrote this prayer in, in a real situation. And what we find in this psalm, at the heart of it, is a plea for justice. David is longing for justice. And he's not longing for some vague idea of justice. No, David knows what justice should look like. Because David has been set apart to be the king. And he knows the law of God that is to govern these people. David is appealing to God's law, what God has revealed as justice. He's thinking of, for example, Leviticus 24, 17 to 20, where we read, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Right? The Israelites were living under God's law. They were a nation that was governed by God's law. And David was set apart to be the future king. He knew what justice looked like. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And that's what he's praying for in this psalm. He's thinking about what has happened, and he is applying that now to the guilty party. That was the standard for justice that he's asking for. And you can see it all through the prayer. Verse 6. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Right? Because there was an accuser standing at my right hand. Let that happen to him. For he did not remember to show kindness. This is verse 16. But pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. So let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. What is David saying here? 
in, in, in a number of ways and spanning across all of the things that his enemy has done, David is saying, God, you see this, right? You see what he's done. The injustice of it all. God, you see it and you're just. A priest gave my men some bread and as a result, they killed an entire city, God? What are you going to do about that? Children, infants, curse him. Curse him to hell. That's what this psalm is. One commentator notes, the passages on which we may be tempted to sit in judgment have the shocking immediacy of a scream to startle us into feeling something of the desperation which produced them. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. We're being startled to feel something of what David felt. You know, it's hard if you've never lived through this kind of injustice. This isn't a psalm that resonates with me because I've never lived through something like this. But David has just witnessed horrors unspeakable. And he's crying out with this scream of pain, startling us. And nowhere more so than in verses 9 to 13. Let me read this again. This is the most shocking section of this whole psalm. He prays, May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. So so let's assume for a moment that David did write this psalm fresh on the heels of Doeg the Edomite slaughtering all the children in Nob. Let's assume that that David is is weeping in a cave, remembering the little faces who waved at him like this. Even still, that just feels like a terribly offensive portion of Scripture, doesn't it? It feels like a horrible prayer to pray. Charles Spurgeon, however, would have us just think, think more deeply about what justice looks like. And and Charles Spurgeon challenges us to think about how we are very inconsistent with the way that we think about the world. So he asks, who mourns that Pharaoh's children lost their father? Or that Sennacherib's wife became a widow? What he's saying is, you, you rejoice in these stories of justice. You rejoice in them. But it's just that you stop your mind from going any further, from considering the consequences, because Pharaoh had kids, right? And Sennacherib had a family. You know, we we rejoice that that justice rained down on Adolf Hitler. Have you thought about his family? Pol Pot? Charles Manson? You know, we we don't follow it to the logical conclusion because it's terribly uncomfortable to do so. We applaud that justice is done, but we take no stock of the fact that justice actually impacts the whole family. But justice does impact the whole family because injustice impacts the whole family. These wicked men ruined whole families. And David's praying that eye for eye, their whole families would be ruined in turn. No more, no less. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In David's estimation, that's justice. And there can be no justice any other way. So he asks for it. Now we're going to come back to that. But that's what he's doing here. That's, that's why he's praying these heavy things. And now before we move on, I do want to make sure that that we see that even in the depth of David's pain, 
even in the midst of this unthinkable injustice, David knows that he can't just take justice into his own hands. He knows that. So he lays out his heart, but then he leaves it with God because he knows God will do what's right. He says in verse 27, let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. You've done it. Not me, David says. As fiery as this psalm is, it's not a checklist of of things that terrifying David is going to do. You know, there's so many movies right now like this of of some vigilante whose family was killed and he goes out to to make justice. This isn't that, right? This isn't David, you know, writing his own script for that movie. No. David says, these are all the things that ought to happen because of your justice, God. Because of what I know about who you are. Because of what I know about how this world should work. This is what ought to happen. But God, let them know that it's you, not me. And again, if you're reading through the RMM reading plan, this adds even more wonder to the story that happens just a few days later when Saul's pursuing David and David sneaks up to him in the camp and he, he's, got, he's right there with the spear and the man with David says, hey David, this is the chance. Give me that spear. I'll thrust it right through him all the way into the ground. He'll never get up again. And David says, I won't raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. So I'm not going to take justice into my own hands. And that's powerful in and of itself, but it's even more powerful when you think about the fact that David's got fresh in his mind everything that happened in the city of Nob. But he says, no, God has got this, and I'm going to leave it with him. That moves us to the third section of the psalm, the final section of the psalm, where we find, curiously, a declaration of praise. This dark psalm, oddly enough, is bookended with praise. He begins and he prays, Be not silent, O God of my praise. And then he concludes with praise. Now, one of the ways that I believe this psalm should stretch us, comfortable Canadians, is is in the way in which God's justice fuels David's worship. He's not embarrassed by the theme of a just God. On the contrary, in Psalm 109, God's justice is the reason David sings. So after crying out for help and mercy, he declares in the close of this psalm, with my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. Why? For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. In a world filled with unrighteousness, a world filled with oppressors and slanderers and abusers, there is a righteous judge who never misses a thing. And David is thankful for that. We ought to be thankful for that. This God stands at the right hand of the needy. He fights for the cause of the oppressed. They don't always see him standing at the right hand. They don't always see the way in which he's fighting for their cause. But David knows he does it. He does it. He judges with absolute perfection. He never misses a thing. It feels like he missed that thing. You're wondering if he saw that thing. No, he didn't. He never misses anything. Therefore, even though David has suffered terrible injustice, he can begin and end this fiery psalm full of righteous anger. He can bookend it with praise because he has somewhere to bring his righteous anger. Praise God for that. That's what this psalm says. So that's, that's our quick survey of the psalm. There's more that we could say. We could parse through some verbs. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to give us more time today to think through the difficult questions of application. What do we do with this psalm? 
And first, I want to ask two questions. Here's the first question. Why did God give us this psalm? I just want to remind you, you know this, but let me tell you again. God gave us this psalm. It's not here because of David's idea. Who wrote the Bible? Holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. Now, this psalm is the kind of psalm that we're tempted to just write off because it offends our North American ears. But I would argue it's the fact that it offends us is the reason why we ought to lean in and listen close. It offends us because we're not hearing it anyplace else. And if God has given it to us, and if we're not hearing it anyplace else, then wow, we ought to hear it, shouldn't we? God didn't give us this psalm to embarrass us. He didn't give us this psalm as an example of how not to pray. So why did he give us this psalm? I would put forward two obvious reasons. There are more, to be sure, but two reasons that jumped out in my heart and mind as I thought through it this week. First, God gave us this psalm to give voice to the plight of the oppressed. So in the same way that the book of Psalms gives voice to our our despair and gives voice to our joy and gives voice to our doubts and gives voice to every other emotion under the sun, it also gives voice to righteous anger. We need that. You know, I am... I am somebody who struggles with, with often bouts of, of deep discouragement. That's just one of the battles I face in my life. And I'm so helped and I'm so thankful that in those seasons, I can turn to God's Word and I can look to the Psalms and I can find prayers that God wrote for me to pray in the valley. It's such a blessing to me. I feel understood by God. I feel like He's not surprised by, by this. He knows me. He knows how I feel. And He's given me a prayer to pray. And isn't that such a blessing? And it's true for each of us. That he's given us these prayers to pray. But what about the woman whose innocence was stolen from her by a sexual predator? What about the Ukrainian widow whose house is on fire and she's saying goodbye to her son and her grandsons because they're going to stay and fight? What about the police officer walking into his house when he just witnessed the most horrific crime scene with details that I won't even begin to allude to this morning? What do they pray? Does God understand them and their need? Is there a prayer for for that fire that is burning in their heart in that moment? The answer is yes. Now for the rest of us who aren't walking into that crime scene, who haven't witnessed that genocide, who haven't seen the horrors, we're tempted to mute these notes of anger, to explain them all away. We're tempted to downplay the justice of God. Oh, that's not who He is anymore. We think we're nicer than God. So we give, ourselves, we give ourselves permissions to soften off all of the hard edges. But in our kindness, we edit out truths that hurting people need to hear. God gave us this psalm because we need it. R.C. Sproul is right when he says, if we despise the justice of God, we are not Christians. A loving God who has no wrath is no God. He's an idol of our own making as much as if we carved Him out of stone. And you say, well, that's charged language. But it's not charged language because God has revealed Himself in His Word as a loving God who has wrath against sin. So if we're going to edit out the Word of God to make Him into something that we find more palatable, then that is an idol. And it's dangerous. And the problem with manufacturing a God that looks just like me is that the world is facing problems that I can't even begin to comprehend. And so this God that I make in my image, he might be adequate to to console me and comfort me when I'm being really hard on myself. 
But, but for the church in Afghanistan, for that family whose father was beheaded, they don't need the God of my imagination. He's no good for them. They need the God of the Bible. And that's why we have this psalm. To give voice to the plight of the oppressed. That's the first reason. The second reason is this. Why, do, why did God give us this psalm? To affirm that God cares about justice. And we can too. You know, I, um, I watched the sermons for when I was away. They were fantastic. The, the one sermon, uh, I remember there was a moment when the preacher was very passionate. And I remember there was a time when he even he slammed his fist on the pulpit. There was a righteous anger that had filled him as he considered the injustices of the world. And though I wasn't here in the room, I suspect that some of us felt a little bit uncomfortable in that moment. That's good for us. You know, there's no shortage of injustice in the world. And we're not meant to be indifferent about it. Innocent people are accused and hurt. Guilty people succeed, go free. Children are ransomed and judges are bribed. Boys and girls are enslaved. The unborn are killed. You know, if the Bible doesn't have anything to say about the reality of injustice that we see all around us, then why should anyone waste their time reading it? And if the preacher has never slammed his fist on the pulpit with tears in his eyes, then one wonders whether the preacher has actually seen the brokenness of this world. In this psalm, David's eyes are wide open, and that's why it's so uncomfortable for us. Because he is seeing the brokenness of the world, and he is voicing how angry he is about it. Unthinkable injustice. That's what David is seeing. But praise God, what we learn in this psalm is that David knows where to bring his complaint. See, Psalm 109 makes comfortable, coddled Christians like me grimace. But that's exactly what I need. Because God would have me return to Psalm 109 to remind me that the gospel is good news for the oppressed. The gospel is good news for that Christian fleeing their war-torn country. The gospel is good news for that young lady who suffered terrible abuse. The gospel is good news for all. And if it was left to my own devices and if I was left to preach the, the text that sing in my heart and that resonate with my experience, then those people would never hear that God understands their plight. And he cares about justice. And we can too. But that leads me to ask one concluding question. How do we pray this psalm today? Can we just pick up Psalm 109 and pray this verbatim with a person in mind? Just substitute their name in? And as I begin to wrestle through this question, I just want to say that there are really wonderful, godly, wise people who disagree on this. So I just want to do a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, as I studied through, I've landed in the place where most of the commentaries that I had landed, uh, but some of them didn't land where I've landed. As we wrestled through this in the preaching workshop, I was confronted by a wide variety of opinions on how this should be used by preachers who have been living in the text and studying this for their lives. Uh, one brother pastor that I love is right now praying Psalm 109 for Vladimir Putin in his devotions. Another pastor who I deeply respect says that if we were to pray this text verbatim, 
living as we do on this side of the cross, if we pray this as it's written, that we would be praying in contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's a wide spectrum, and that was sobering for me. So I want to tell you, I feel, I feel convicted in where I've landed, and I, I wrestled faithfully, and I landed again in, I think, what was the majority position in what I studied, but this is a tough one. So let's wrestle with humility. Hear this appropriately then. How do we pray this psalm today? Here's my answer. How do we pray this psalm today? Carefully and sparingly with an eye to the cross. Believe it or not, we do find New Testament examples of imprecatory prayers. That is, prayers that are calling down judgment. We find those. In fact, we find one right at the end of our Bible. So in uh, Revelation chapter 6, these are the martyrs who have been slain for their faith, and they're in heaven. Here's what they're praying. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So that's a prayer that's being prayed in heaven right now. In, in a similar way, we find in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we preached through this, and I believe actually Matt Scarlett preached this text, which makes me smile now. It's a tricky one. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul prays similarly, thanking God that those who persecute the church will receive their just penalty. He's thanking God for the justice that will rain down on those who persecute the church. So those are, those are in the New Testament. We can pray imprecatory prayers. We can pray like this. But how do we handle this? How do we handle, for example, Psalm 109, where he's got these explicit requests? First of all, we should pray it carefully. See, David was God's appointed and anointed king, which means that anyone who raised their hand against David and against David's cause was raising their hand against God and against God's cause. So David could pray this prayer knowing beyond the shadow of the doubt, that he was in the right. But if we're going to use this prayer, boy, you want to know beyond the shadow of the doubt that you're in the right. Are you sure it isn't your sin that's motivating this prayer? Are you sure that you have a grasp of the whole story? Are you sure that you're on the right side of this confrontation? Boy, use this prayer carefully. And, and use this prayer sparingly. That's the second thing I wanted to highlight. This isn't the kind of prayer that you pray when someone steals your parking spot. This isn't the kind of prayer you pray when your boss publicly embarrasses you. This is the kind of prayer you pray after a genocide. You don't pray this prayer against your spouse after you fought over the dishes. No, this is a prayer for the deepest, darkest injustices that are endured in this broken world. That's what this prayer is for. That's why we have it. So use it sparingly. And finally, if you're praying, praying a prayer like this, then oh, you make sure, Christian, that you are praying this prayer with your eyes fixed firmly on the cross. See, David was right to pray Psalm 109. Just to be clear, David didn't sin in Psalm 109 in his prayer. He was right to pray the prayer that he prayed. He was praying in correspondence with what God had revealed in terms of justice, right? David was, he, David's got the law running in his mind, and David says, this is what should be done. This is what is right, according to what I've seen in the law of God. However, you and I are living in the new covenant, and we actually have seen more than what David has seen. We have a deeper understanding of the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, Jesus prays, you have, Jesus teaches, sorry, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So he's quoting the law. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So how can that be? Right? Is God any less just now in the new covenant than he was in the old? Is that what's happened? He's less committed to righting that which is wrong? Is he, is he less righteous? Well, no. The Apostle Paul explains for us here living as we do in the new covenant. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that is revealed, apart from the law. Right? So David's looking to the law. He's saying it's actually the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul's saying there's actually a new standard now for righteousness, a deeper understanding that we have as followers of Christ. Well, where do we see the righteousness of God? Well, the Apostle Paul points to the cross. And he says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what we're learning in in Romans 3 is that from the beginning of time all the way to the end of time, anyone who was looking forward in faith to the sacrifice that God would provide, and all of us who are looking backwards in faith to Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all of us, our sin has been laid on Christ. It's been imputed on Christ. And every single wicked, evil thing that we have ever done from the beginning to the end, those who put their trust in Christ, it is paid for in full at the cross. And there, the righteousness of God, His wrath against sin, His love for His people is revealed to us. And we cannot pray as if that didn't happen. We can't open Psalm 109 and pray as if we haven't seen this that David had not yet seen. Thus, Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, right after he just alluded to eye for eye, tooth for tooth, he talked about that. And then he goes on to say, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Boy, you can only obey that command if you understand the cross. You can only pray that prayer if you understand the price that Jesus paid. So we look to the cross as Christians And what makes us Christians is that we believe in faith that His death in our place as our substitute was enough. We believe that it was enough. That as as vile as my sin is, it was covered by the blood of Christ on the cross. We believe that, don't we? But the question is, okay, what what about the sin of that person who's mistreated you? What about this, the sin of that person who has heinously sinned against you? If they surrender to Christ, if they repent, is the blood of Jesus sufficient to cover their sin? So we should pray. We pray that our enemies would surrender their lives to Christ. We pray that they would repent. We pray that the righteous wrath of God against their sin would be poured out at the cross. And we pray that if and when they repent and God's righteousness is shown at the cross, that we would have the ability to forgive and to entrust that justice to our holy God. That's how we handle this as Christians. Now, I want to be really clear. Here's where it gets a little bit tricky. 
Am I saying that now they're free from all earthly consequences? No, I'm not saying that. Right? So living in the Old Covenant, they're living in Israel and God's law, His civil law, they've got just penalties for their sin. Well, we live in Canada and according to God's Word in Romans 13, it says we have a government over us too. And they, they punish evildoers. And that's something we thank God for. The king doesn't wield the sword in vain. And so as a Christian, I can pray for the person who abused me and I can, I can ask God to help me. I can pray that their sin would be taken on the cross, that they would have forgiveness in Christ. I can forgive them in my heart. Nevertheless, I'm also... I, that doesn't mean I don't call the police. That doesn't mean that I, you know, I stand up before the judge and say there should be no consequence for their sin. No, there are earthly consequences even still. Grace doesn't erase earthly consequences. However, earthly consequences aside, we are called to surrender our deepest Longing for justice to God. And at the cross, that justice has been satisfied. But if you're a careful listener, then you might be wondering, well, wait a second. That assumes that my enemy surrenders their life to Christ. That assumes that they put their trust in him and that all of their sin is punished at the cross. But what about my enemies who I pray for, but they never put their trust in Christ? What about those who never have their sin paid for at the cross? Well, God's going to deal with that sin too. The Bible reminds us that God deals justly with all sin. And in Revelation 20, right at the end of our Bible, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. All of it. In verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that is, if there was anyone whose sins had not been paid for at the cross, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, as uncomfortable as it is, we need to know that God is infinitely more committed to justice than we are. Every single sin, every injustice will be held to account. Nothing has been missed. Nothing will be missed. As Paul assures us in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So like David, what do we do? We grieve injustice. It's right to do so. And when we feel righteous anger over the brokenness that we see in our lives and the lives of our friends in our world, we bring that righteous anger to the Lord. We call upon Him to issue the justice which He has promised. We pray that prayer carefully. We pray that prayer sparingly. And we pray that prayer with our eyes firmly fixed on the cross of Christ remembering all that he has done for us and all that he can do for even our fiercest enemies. And to that end, let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to hear as we should hear. Um, Lord, I, I'm feeling very, what's the word? I'm very, feeling very mindful of the fact that I'm just, a, I'm just a man, and I have limited understanding. 
And these things are, are bigger than me. And I, I'm not going to grow into this in 30 years. This will always be bigger than me. Charles Spurgeon said, this is a mystery, and we humble ourselves before it. How do we hold together the justice and the love of God in our finite minds? How do we hold together the fact that you are committed to the cause of the needy and the oppressed, but then the reality that terrible, wicked, awful things are happening all around us? God, it is, it is a, a challenge of faith for us to hold it all together. But Lord, what we do is, is, with our hands open, we come to you and we say, God, would you help us? Just help us to see you in the midst of all of the chaos and the hurt. Lord, I pray that we would see you not as we, we want you to be, not as maybe we were told that you were by teachers in the past, but God, help us to see you as you have revealed yourself to be in your word. And we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes more and more day by day. Lord, this is why we need to be in your word, because this is where we learn about you. So God, we, uh, we thank you, even for the days when we feel startled and the days when we feel even slightly uncomfortable. Uh, Lord, it's good for us because we want to know you. We need to know you. Lord, I pray that you would help those who are here and maybe, maybe they're feeling a bit like David and they're feeling like they have just witnessed unspeakable evil. Maybe that has been the story of their life. Maybe they're living in the shadow of, of an unspeakable evil. And, uh, they, and they don't know what to do. Their hearts have been plagued by this. And that righteous anger, they, don't, they didn't know where to bring it. Lord, I pray that today you would open their eyes to see that there is a righteous, holy God who is more than capable of taking that righteous anger. Lord, there's a place where they can bring it. I pray that you'd meet them there. And Lord, I pray for still others. Maybe there are people here who have done unspeakably evil things. Um, Lord, there are people here who are feeling the conviction for sin. Lord, they're, they're envisioning that day when the books will be open and they know there are things written in that book that damn them to hell. Uh, I pray that you would show them today that there is grace for us in Christ, that if we confess our sins and place our trust in Jesus, we can be saved. And I pray that today would be a day of salvation for many. So Lord, we're asking for these things in faith. Only you can do it and we plead with you that you would. Help us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.